Good morning. Glad to hear all the joyful fellowship. Um, it's one of the great things about being part of this church. Um, many of you may remember from last week that Dave mentioned a couple things. First, that he's going to be starting a summer series on Leviticus. Uh, it's going to kind of be continuing this tradition. He went through Genesis and then Exodus, and, and this summer we've got Leviticus going on. And uh, seeing that he was going to be away, he asked if I would be interested in kind of introducing the series. And uh, I agreed because there was some interesting stuff that I was kind of eager to explore, but then realized as I got into the research for it that I'd bitten off a bit more than I could chew. <laughs> So this is, this is my best shot. I thought that the, the best way to approach this, especially because Dave is going to be focusing on the theme of holiness as we go through that book, was to do a kind of thematic sermon talking about holiness and exploring what God's holiness, what his people's holiness is. And there is a balance that I'm going to try to strike. And my hope is that I can bring a little bit of adjustment in some of the conventional ways that we think about holiness, but also not go too far. And you all can be the judge of whether that balance is struck. Basically, there are are three parts of this sermon. First, I'm going to bring up the the way of thinking about holiness that I think requires a little bit of adjustment. So I'm going to talk about what I, I think is perhaps the wrong way to look at holiness, or at least to frame holiness um, in terms of. After doing that, more importantly, what we'll look at is, okay, so what does the Bible actually represent holiness as? When we look at the text itself, what do we find there? So how would, how would the biblical text that we have that speak of holiness provide a definition of it for us? So we'll talk about what it means to be a holy God, what it means to be a holy people, and then finally, there's a kind of paradox that arises in the language of holiness. And that was, for me, the most interesting thing to explore as I prepared this. And we'll look at how that paradox is resolved when we frame holiness in terms of God's love. So first and foremost, the, the way of thinking about holiness that I think needs to be challenged is that sometimes it's framed in terms of uh, kind of moral purity, okay, in absence of of sin. When, so when people think, you know, holiness, they think absence of sin, or they think moral purity. So that kind of understanding is reflected in, in statements like, you know, a, a holy God cannot be in the presence of sin. Now, God is, make no mistake about what I'm saying, God is morally pure. And sin is incompatible with God, with the holy God. But the problem with defining things that way is that holiness is actually about much, much more than that. It's a much larger topic than that. And when we define holiness in those terms, in terms of sin, we actually improperly reduce it and we distort the biblical meaning of the term. This matters because um, an understanding of holiness that disproportionately emphasizes sin ends up misrepresenting the character of God, I think. And so for the sake of clarity, I'm just going to be very direct here. When we define holiness strictly in terms of sin, it disproportionately emphasizes God's concern with sin with respect to his own deity. Holiness, as we'll see, 
is about God's own godness and how utterly and dangerously different God is from humanity and all false gods. And furthermore, when we define holiness in terms of sin, it disproportionately emphasizes it's important with respect to our relationship with God. Sin is, of course, a huge problem for us. It's one of the dominant powers that enslaves us and from which we are in desperate need of deliverance. And it's indeed largely because of God's holiness that God deals with sin in various ways, most climactically through Jesus' incarnation, death, and resurrection. But God's holiness actually has more to do with his divine initiative to love and to choose and to deliver than it does with our sin. Sin creates a major rift in our relationship with God that requires repair, but it does not define the relationship. And when sin comes up, God makes a way to deal with it. So that's the misconception, I think, that requires a little bit of adjustment. Sin should not be termed, or holiness, rather, should not be termed primarily in terms of sin. Okay, so, so then what? What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean for God to be holy? What does it mean for us to be holy? So if it's not defined in terms of sin, here are some definitions that I think actually fit the biblical data a little bit better. So this is from biblical scholar John Goldingay. He says, holiness is a term for the distinctive, transcendent, heavenly, awesome, exalted nature of deity for what marks deity over against humanity. And another biblical scholar, Walter Brueggemann, the term holiness refers to the radical otherness of Yahweh, who may not be easily approached, who may not be confused with anyone or anything else, and who lives alone in a prohibitive zone where Israel can enter only guardedly, intentionally, and at great risk. So it seems to me that those definitions make sense of the way the Bible uses holiness language better than a definition that is is fundamentally about moral purity or the absence of sin. And indeed, if we're going to define holiness against its opposite, biblically speaking, the clearest example of that is found in Leviticus 10. And what we see there is that the opposite of holy is common. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with it, this is the part in the story where Aaron's sons have offered what's referred to as strange or unauthorized fire before God in their incense censers. And they do so contrary to God's instructions. And fire comes out from the presence of God and they die. Moses at that point says that God had those kinds of actions in mind when he had warned that and quoting him here, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. So after that, God tells Aaron and his remaining sons that they're not to drink wine or similar drink when when they go into the tent of meeting or that they'll die. And he says, this is a lasting ordinance for generations to come so that they can distinguish between, and here's the contrast, here's the definition, They can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the clean and the unclean. So the real opposite of holiness is not so much sin as ordinary. 
okay, as common. Sin is ordinary and common among humanity, among the world. And so in that sense, sin kind of falls under the larger umbrella of commonness. But holiness is not the opposite of sin as such. It's the opposite of commonness in contrast to God, who is utterly unique, different, uncommon. God is utterly distinct from the deities of the pagan nations. And for Israel, that's really, really important. That's the context that they found themselves in. And so as such, God gives very specific instructions about how he is to be worshipped to highlight that difference. A great many of the laws in Leviticus have to do with the way that Yahweh is to be worshipped to set him apart from the other pagan nations around, to set his deity against those other pagan gods. For Yahweh was distinct, he was holy, and he was not to be worshipped in those typical ways. Um, The second way, the second time, rather, that, that the language of holy comes up in the Bible, is when Moses encounters God at the burning bush. So Moses is told there that he is standing on holy ground. And what's notable for our purposes here is that God does not tell him to repent of his sin. God doesn't tell him to offer a sacrifice from the flock that he's shepherding. Rather, God tells him to take off his shoes in recognition of the holiness, the specialness, the uncommonness of the place where he is as the result of God's holy presence there. So again, the emphasis is on difference, not on moral purity or the absence of sin. So the most important and fundamental aspect of holiness, that which encompasses all the uses in the Bible, is this sense of complete distinction, difference, set-apartness. And in contrast to that, there's actually a great many, indeed the vast majority of cases, at least in the Pentateuch, which I looked at exhaustively for this sermon, where if we define it in terms of sin or moral purity, it actually doesn't add up. It doesn't work in the context of many, many uses of holiness language in the Old Testament. Now, that does raise an important question, I think. If holiness is basically primarily about set-apartness, then fine. But then where does the danger come from? Because we can make sense of the danger if we do frame it in terms of sin or moral purity. Then often the way it's thought of is that the danger comes from sinful people approaching a holy God who cannot abide the presence of sin, and therein lies the danger, right? But as I looked at the language, the way that these stories arose in the Old Testament... I actually found that that didn't work either. We have to go back to this understanding of holiness as God's uniqueness, his separation, his set-apartness. So it's not some kind of moral impurity that results in the most dramatic cases of God breaking out against people in the Old Testament when it comes to it pertaining to, to holiness. Rather, it's actions that fail to recognize Yahweh's utter distinction or set-apartness. So we've already mentioned Aaron's sons, right? Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10. They were not killed for being morally impure in God's presence. Rather, it was their sense of entitlement to worship God in a way other than the specific guidelines he'd given them. And that threatened God's distinctiveness. It threatened to present him as a more common deity. 
In Numbers 16, we see Korah's rebellion. And Korah was a Levite who suggested that all Levites, not just the descendants of Aaron, should be allowed to be priests. But like the specifications for the priestly garments or for burning incense, setting apart the family of Aaron to be priests was a way of representing God's own set-apartness. It was thus not Korah's moral impurity that brought destruction on his entire rebellion, but rather his attempt to compromise God's holiness by making the priesthood a more common thing. And a final example, in 2 Samuel 6, Uzzah is struck down for reaching out to steady the Ark of the Covenant as it was falling off of a cart. And again here, it was not Uzzah's sinfulness that is in view in this episode, but it's his treatment of God's holy ark as a common thing, a common item to be handled like other common items without due reverence or preparation. So God is utterly distinct. He's utterly unique. He's utterly unlike false gods or the rest of of creation, And it's this aspect of God's nature, okay, his holiness, that is so overwhelmingly powerful that it threatens anything common that seeks to enter its sphere. Any commonness or ordinariness in the sphere of God would actually compromise his utter uniqueness. And since that sort of by definition, by default, cannot be compromised, the commonness which, is approach- which approaches it in that way without first being made holy... Okay, made analogously distinct, runs the great risk of annihilation. And so I would suggest that that's the true source of the risk. So in addition um, to, this inherent, to this inherent danger, just the inherent danger of, of the mixture of the common and the uncommon, the common and the holy, um, God also defends his reputation against defamation, this, his reputation of being the one true God against defamation and associated with other, other deities. So, like I said, I looked, at, I looked at exhaustive uses of holiness language in the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And then I, had, I didn't have time to do that for the whole Old Testament, but I did look kind of more selectively at other uses. <clears throat> and what I found in this kind of survey was that most of the holiness language, in, in the Pentateuch at least, does not have to do with God specifically or even with his people It actually has to do with uh, things, places, and practices that were designed to recognize God's distinctness. So um, the list that I compiled of this, of the uses of holiness language that did not pertain to God or his people, included these things. It talks about the Sabbath being holy, uh, places of God's presence, sacred events or assemblies, Places in the tabernacle, you've got the holy place, the holy of holies. Altars and things that altars touch. Offerings and gifts of all kinds. God's name is holy. Uh, Many items and materials for the tabernacle and priestly garments and articles. Those are the kinds of things that most of the Old Testament language about holiness pertain to. And so the impersonal nature of those things shows that sin or moral purity is not the primary thing in view because those things can't be sinful. A day can't be sinful. sinful. A, um, a, a instrument in the tabernacle cannot be 
sinful. And beyond that, even if, you know, we might suggest that it's, it's the absence of blemish or something in those things that represents sin somehow, even that actually doesn't work when you look at many of the cases because it's not the blemish that is the focus, but rather how the things are set apart from other things. Okay? So those, these many things that are referred to as holy are for God. They are for God's presence. And they are differentiated from the common or the ordinary things to that end. So while sin does come up now and again in a related way, it's related to holiness, it certainly is not the focal point of the idea of holiness in the Pentateuch. The focal point is God's difference, is the difference of these various things. And so if we kind of established that, then what I did was I looked at kind of other uses and, and, and tried to see where the Old Testament did talk about God with holiness language. How did the context inform that? How did, if we look at the surrounding context, how does that kind of fill in? How does it explicate what is meant by God being holy? And I found kind of three themes, three loose themes that seem to be found regularly in the context of that kind of language. The first is that God is one. He is unique. He is utterly above and beyond all gods. The second is language about God's eternal nature, his transcendent nature, him being the sovereign creator of all things. So when Drew talked about God being holy, being related to him making all of the creation, he actually showed a pretty good grasp of the Old Testament language of holiness. Um, And then the third thing is that God is Israel's mighty deliverer, triumphing over all who resist him. So when the Old Testament talks about God's holiness, those are the kinds of things that they're referring to. That's that's what sets God apart as God. That's what defines God's holy godness. So just to illustrate this, I'm going to read several passages from... From scripture, and I don't have time. It would it would make sense to go through and read these in their entirety. Uh, I don't have time to do that. I'll have to take excerpts, but I would encourage you guys to go look at Exodus 15 as a whole, Isaiah 41, Isaiah 43, Nehemiah 9, and, and there are plenty of other examples that you guys can go through and, and, and kind of check up on, on what I'm saying here. But the ones I've chosen are from Exodus 15, Isaiah 43, and then Revelation 4. So in Exodus 15, this is Moses' song of deliverance um, that he sings after God has delivered the Israelites from Egypt. He says, The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father is God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. A little bit further down, he says, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? You stretch out your hand, and the earth swallows your enemies. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. And then at the end, the Lord reigns forever and ever. In Isaiah 43, the first four verses of that were read, 
in the call to worship this morning. I'm not going to repeat those, but it talks about God creating Jacob, forming Israel. So his, cre- his, his existence as the creator is seen there. He says, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have summoned you by name. You are mine. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Um, And then a little bit further down, which this part was not read in the call to worship, it says, Before me no God was formed, nor will there be anyone after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed, I and not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am God. Yes, and from ancient days, I am he. No one can deliver out of my hand. When I act, who can reverse it? This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. For your sake, I will send to Babylon and bring down as fugitives all the Babylonians in the ships in which they took pride. I am the Lord, your Holy One, Israel's Creator, your king. So then when we turn to the end of the Bible, in Revelations 4, it talks about these four living creatures who surround God's throne, and they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. So that's God's holiness, as the Old Testament understands it. It's God's radical set-apartness, especially from all gods. It's his existence as the... Um, unique God, his existence as the eternal transcendent creator, his existence as Israel's mighty deliverer. And that's what brings us to the idea of a holy people. So this holy God calls to himself a holy people. Israel has the special and unique distinction of being God's holy people, a people that God has created and called for the sake of his name. Now, the first and most famous description of this is in Exodus 19, and we read about this last summer, where God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So when the Bible talks about Israel as a holy nation, God is not so much saying you are morally pure as he is saying you are mine. Israel is set apart to and for him in a special way. Now, the book of Leviticus, which is what we'll be studying, is where we find some of the most detailed instructions for how Israel is to be set apart from the other nations around it. 
Since they are to be God's holy people, they themselves are called to be holy. So that's where we get this, be holy for I am holy language. So in in Leviticus 11, 42 through 47, here's what we we read. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Do not make yourselves unclean by eating any creature that moves along the ground. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. So in this particular case, ritual and dietary laws were some of the things, some of the many things that distinguished Israel from other nations. And these things don't have to do with moral purity as such, but with various means of distinction, of being set apart, of being different. But there is more than just Sabbath, ritual, and diet that makes Israel holy. God does also give them a moral law, which is to distinguish them. And that is where morality comes into the sphere of holiness. And so in Leviticus 19, here's what we read. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Each of you must respect your mother and father, and you must observe my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make metal gods for yourselves. I am the Lord your God. And then following this, there are many more commandments. There's a lot of overlap with the Ten Commandments in this passage. And then finally we come to verses 17 and 18, where it says, Do not hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor frankly so that you will not share in their guilt. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. So that verse, of course, should, should spark some recognition for those of us who have read the stories of Jesus in the New Testament. Both Jesus and his contemporary Jews understood that the entire moral law could be summarized in two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. That comes from Deuteronomy 6. And love your neighbor as yourself, which comes from this passage in Leviticus 19. So the entire moral law, which is to set Israel apart, it can be summarized in those two commands to love. I think that begs the, it raises the question of why. Okay, And I think the answer to that question is because it's rooted in God's holy character. That fact that those things, that the entire moral law which sets them apart can be summarized by love speaks to God's holy character. It tells us something about what his holy character involves. So that brings us to this idea of another common way of the Old Testament talking about holiness, which is where it talks about God's holy name. God's holy name. In the Old Testament especially, a name reflects a person's character. And God's holy name is something that God often defends in the Old Testament. But one of the most important revelatory acts of the entire Old Testament is when Moses asks God to show me your glory on Mount Sinai. And God tells Moses that he will cause his goodness to pass before Moses and that he will say his name in Moses' presence. And so here's what we find there in Exodus 34, 5 through 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. 
And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord. And this, of course, is God's personal name, Yahweh, Yahweh. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth. And Moses bowed down to the ground at once and worshipped. So what sets this people apart is love. And I would suggest that is because what sets this God apart is love. A love unlike any other love. A love that's utterly beyond, utterly distinct from, utterly set apart from all others. So if my logic is sound here, it should reinforce the larger goal of reframing our understanding of holiness. Because what I'm suggesting here is that when we think of holiness, we shouldn't think of it primarily as moral purity or the absence of sin, but rather as distinctness and set-apartness. And what we've just observed here about God's love only fills out that distinction a little bit more. The primary way that God's holy people are set apart is rooted in the primary thing that sets God apart, love. Moral purity is there, and so is justice, and so is God's anger at sin. But those things all are secondary to God's love when it comes to the core of God's character. When God describes that, his character, what he emphasizes is his love and compassion, that he is forgiving and slow to anger. So that's why it strikes me that we have a problem when if we think about holiness, the first thing we think about is God's anger towards sin. When, when God talks about holiness, his own character, what he emphasizes is his slowness to anger and his forgiveness of sin. Okay, we don't want to set up false dichotomies here because sin matters, morality matters, but it's a question of priority. It's a question of emphasis. What is really at the core of who God is? So again, just to be very clear, there's a place for anger towards sin, but at the core of God's character, expressed by his holy name, what we find is love. So when we turn to the New Testament, what we find is that with the holiness language there, there is a shift in the center of gravity. When we look at how the holiness language is used in the New Testament, the realm of kind of morality and behavior does come much more to overlap with the language of holiness. But I think part of the reason for that is because many of the things that were to set Israel apart are actually done away with in the New Testament, right? So there are no, the people of God, as God's holy people, are no longer defined by Sabbaths. They're, they're no longer defined by the feasts that they observe. They're no longer defined by things like circumcision or dietary laws. And so really, the sort of moral law is, is one of the few things that remains to set them apart from the people around them. So that, I think, is why those, those two things come much closer together in the New Testament understanding of what holiness is. But having said that, I, I don't think that that changes anything about the basic point that I'm making here, which is that holiness is primarily about being set apart. 
And, and similarly in the New Testament, what sets the people of God apart more than anything else is love. Okay? Beyond moral purity, beyond the absence of sin, it's not to say that moral purity isn't there or that it's not important. It is important. But um, it's, it's just to say that it's not the most important. If God's love and commitment is more fundamental to his holiness than moral purity and wrath at sin, that should also be true of his people. We should be marked out first and foremost by love rather than moral purity or a posture at sin, important as those things may be. Okay, it's the emphasis and the priority that matters. And I think we run into trouble. We, we misrepresent God's character when we get our priorities flipped. And, and that's one of the driving motiva- motivations for this sermon and making this point. So a holy God calls a holy people both distinguished first and foremost by their love. Now, that brings us to the last part of this sermon and this interesting paradox that arises in the Old Testament's holiness language. The vast majority of the occurrences of this phrase come from Isaiah, and there's a couple others scattered throughout the Psalms and Jeremiah. But again, especially in Isaiah, God is referred to as not just the Holy One, but as the Holy One of Israel. And if you think about that, especially in light of the definition that I've been advancing here, about holiness being about set-apartness, that's actually almost paradoxical. Okay? If holiness is about distinctness, about set-apartness, how can you have a Holy One of Israel about someone else? So Walter Brugman describes this much better than I can. I'm just going to read what he says. The holiness of Yahweh is drawn into the covenant categories of Israel's faith so that the Holy One is the related one. Specifically, the Holy One becomes the Holy One in or of Israel. This fuller formulation should be noted with great care for it represents an astonishing theological maneuver. It is probable that holiness understood phenomenologically remains completely a category of separation. Okay, Holiness is about separation. But by linking Holy One to the term of Israel, Israel's testimony asserts that this completely separated one is characteristically the related one. Yahweh's holiness in this formulation is in and with and for Israel. Again, a little later on, he says, there's no doubt in Israel's testimony that Yahweh's holiness makes Yahweh completely other, well beyond Israel, not to be presumed upon. And he quotes Isaiah 57 here, for thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. The oddness comes when Israel's characteristic testimony goes on in this verse to say, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with those who are contrite and humble in spirit to revive the spirit of the humble, to revive the heart of the contrite. There's no ready, easy, or simple resolution of this oddness. 
Israel's utterance about Yahweh moves back and forth between Yahweh's core self-regard and the way in which this self-regard has now been irreversibly committed to Israel. So do you, do you see what the, how the, this paradox arises with this language? If holiness is about complete separation, the language of the Holy One of Israel makes this complete separation about complete commitment, about complete relationality. How can that be? Now, this paradox comes through all the more powerfully in the New Testament, particularly with the incarnation and the cross. In Jesus, not only is the completely distinct one the completely related one, but he also comes among us and takes on flesh. Okay, And this is clearest in the Gospel of John. So in John 1.1, it says, The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews, it says that the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, right? right? This utterly removed one is exactly represented by Jesus, sustaining all things by his powerful word. As John progresses, it becomes clear that for John, for the gospel of John, the climax of Jesus' glory, both his own glorification and the glorification of God's name, is his death on the cross. So in John 12, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Later on in the chapter, My soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And this is speaking directly of Jesus' impending death. So Richard Bauckham talks about how this paradox is resolved. Here's what he says. It is the degradation and death in light of the resurrection, that constitute the ultimate manifestation of God's glory in the world. So let me just pause for a second and ask, when you hear people talk about God's glory, the glory of God, is what we think about, first and foremost, the death of Jesus on the cross. Because for John, that is the ultimate manifestation of God's glory. That tells us something about God's character and what's at its very core. Bauckham continues, they are that, <clears throat> the degradation and death of Jesus on the cross are the ultimate manifestation of God's glory, of course, because they are the ultimate point to which the love of God, his hesed, his charis, his agape, can go for our sake. This is the character of God that Moses heard on Sinai, now described in visible flesh on Golgotha. The paradox of the cross, honor and humiliation, visible splendor and disfigurement and death, exists to make us reckon with a love that is sufficient to resolve the paradox. If 
holiness is ultimately about distinction, about set-apartness. There is nothing more unique and distinctive about God than his infinite love. So Ian Proven talks about how this love sets God apart from other ancient Near Eastern gods. He says there's no concept in this ancient Near Eastern way of thinking that the gods were committed in some way to the good of the worshipers. The world was, after all, not set up in the first place with the good of non-gods in mind. Most human beings entered the world, according to the Mesopotamian view, as slaves of the gods. The cosmos functioned for the gods, and in relation to the gods, human beings were merely an afterthought. They were certainly not created to be recipients of the blessing and love of the gods. So Yahweh is set apart from the pagan gods in that way. And if that's true in the Old Testament, it's certainly true in the New Testament. Church historian Bruce Shelley says that Christianity is the only major religion to have as its central event the humiliation of its God. Let's think about that for a minute. Hans Kung talks about that same idea. He says, Paul succeeded more clearly than anyone in expressing that the ultimately distinguishing feature about Christianity, the distinguishing feature of Christianity as opposed to the ancient world religions and the modern humanisms, is quite literally, according to Paul, this Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ crucified. It is not indeed as risen, exalted, living, divine, but as crucified that this Jesus Christ is distinguished unmistakably from the many risen, exalted, living gods and deified founders of religion, from the Caesars, geniuses, and heroes of world history. So in closing, the paradox of God's holiness is seen in sharpest relief at the cross. And it is resolved when we recognize that in the words of 1 John, God is love. If God's love lies at the very heart of who God is, both sides of the paradox become necessary. This is because love is then seen to be at the very center of what makes God, God. And therefore what sets God apart, what distinguishes God from everything else. But love is also fundamentally about relatedness. So that is how and why the utterly distinct one, holy one, becomes the utterly related one in love. This is how and why the ultimate manifestation of God's glory is his act of humble self-offering for the sake of others. If God's holy name reveals his love, the regard for his holy name is also the regard for his deep commitment to his people. This love that sets God apart is also the very thing that draws God near. In Leviticus, God says, Be holy, for I am holy. In John, Jesus says, As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. May such love transform us and set us apart as the holy people of a holy God. Let me pray. Holy God, we praise you and glorify you and we thank you that this is the kind of God that you are. That at the core of your triune character we find love. 
that above all else, that is what defines you, that is what sets you apart, that is what makes you holy. And we pray now that as your people, we would live such lives among ourselves and among our neighbors that we would be worthy of that same name, of being your holy people. Amen.